Good morning, and please do be seated. If you would, turn back in your Bibles with me to the third psalm, psalm number three, which you can find on page 534, page 534, psalm three, and we're going to continue our series through the psalms this Advent. Let's open with a word of prayer. Now, mighty God, we give you thanks for the word that has been read and that we have heard. Now we pray. Pray that you would grant me faithfulness and clarity as I open this word before your people. Pray, Father, that you would grant to each one of us to be built up in the knowledge and love of you and of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be now and ever acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, do you sometimes feel that reading the newspaper can be a particularly depressing thing to do? Do you sometimes see, as, as you look at the news, it seems like evil rebellion seems to be victorious in this world. We see things from far off, like that spreading power of ISIS, the terrible attacks in Paris and in the United States and in many other places. We see, we see all kinds of evil. We see even evils in our own communities, the terrors of, of neglect and abuse, of addiction and corruption. I could go on, couldn't I? It's clear that there is great evil at work in this world. And sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I see just how powerful these forces are, I'm tempted to wonder, can we be absolutely sure that when Christ does come back, he will be strong enough and powerful enough to put an end to all of this forever? Can we be really sure that when Christ comes again, he really will be able to destroy all evil and rebellion and bring us into his kingdom where righteousness and not evil reign supreme? Well, as we look at Psalm 3 this morning, it is my hope that as we identify with God's Old Testament people and the trust that they were able to put in their king, we will learn afresh how we can trust our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's have a look at the psalm together. The psalm starts off with its Hebrew title. That's not the one that says, Save Me, O God. That's from the editor. It's the one in capitals. It says, A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. So why was David fleeing from Absalom, his son? I think for those who are in the regular habit of reading through the scriptures, we know. But for those who aren't, let me just try to get you back into the picture. We're now in the book of 2 Samuel. This is where we are historically. By now, God has already given to David, his king, his covenant, his promise that he will establish his house, that the throne of his kingdom will be forever, and that he would grant him peace from his enemies. And God has started to do that. But by the time we reach chapter 11 of Second Samuel, things 
have started to go particularly wrong. David, the king, commits adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Then he kills Uriah and takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And it seems at first, perhaps, that through heaping sin upon sin, he might have got away with it. But no sin is hidden before God, no matter how great or how small. And so the very next chapter, chapter 12, we find God's prophet Nathan declaring God's judgment against David for his sin. I'll read you that judgment because it will help us understand what's going on. If you're taking notes, it's 2 Samuel chapter 12, and this is verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own house. Or David, struck to the heart, immediately repents. He seeks forgiveness. He cries out, I have sinned against the Lord. And God in his mercy forgives him his sin. The Lord also, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. But although the Lord has forgiven David and he will not die, yet he is still going to suffer the serious consequence of his sin. The Lord intends at this time to discipline his king that he might learn not to turn away so grievously ever again. And brothers and sisters, the book of Hebrews tells us that God actually does the very same for us. Although, yes, when we go to him for forgiveness, he indeed does forgive us our sin. We will not die for our sin, but we will live. But often he does still discipline us as he teaches us to turn away from sin and into the way of righteousness. Well, this promised evil from within David's house, it starts in chapter 13, where David's son, Absalom, murders his brother Amnon and flees into exile. But in exile, it seems he starts plotting to become king himself. And so by chapter 15, which is what we read as our Old Testament reading, we see Absalom plotting to undermine his father, the king. He's drawing aside the hearts of the people by making with smooth words and with sweet promises. And then we see him go down to Hebron to have himself appointed the king. Or a messenger, if you remember, a messenger arrives and reaches David and says, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And David's an experienced military man, and he knows that if Absalom and all the people trap him in the city, for sure, finish so immediately he determines that he must flee before Absalom can reach Jerusalem. And that's what's happening here. That's the occasion of this psalm as he flees before his son. Psalm 3 and verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. And it seems that those who were rising against him had even decided that God was on their side, that this was God's work throw down David, that God had no further purpose for him. And so verse 2 says, Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. 
But as David flees, and this is 1B if you're looking at the outline, as David fled, things actually went from bad to worse. Because as he started the ascent of the Mount of Olives, as he left Jerusalem, barefoot and weeping with his head covered, he received another bad message. The wise man, Ahithophel, his own counselor, has gone to join Absalom. Not a big problem, right? Wrong. Ahithophel's counsel, as the scripture later explains, is as if someone were to seek the counsel of God himself. He was that wise. And if Ahithophel is on David's side, while David may be able to run away for a while, Ahithophel is on Absalom's side, while David may be able to run away for a while, he will not be able to outwit Absalom and his wise counsel. As he carries on up the hill, he cries out, we read to the Lord, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel to foolishness. Will the Lord hear his cry? Or will he leave him to be destroyed at the hands of his son? Well, as we read on, we find him finally reach the top of God's holy mountain. And we read, as David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him. If you're taking notes, that's 2 Samuel 16, verse 32. Hushai, like Ahithophel, was a wise man, a counselor. And so what David does is he sends Hushai back down from the God's holy hill into Jerusalem that he might frustrate Ahithophel's counsel. He had cried out to the Lord, and the Lord had answered him. And because he knew the Lord has answered him, he was reassured the Lord was not finished with him yet. He would not die. Psalm 3, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. And so tired and weary from his flight, knowing that God had heard and answered him, David settled down to rest. Meanwhile, back in the city of Jerusalem, and we're now at point two if you're looking at the outline, Ahithophel has started dispensing his very wise but very terrible advice. He's already sent Absalom to treat his father as if he were dead by going into his concubines. And now he's counseling Absalom how he can kill his father, the king. He's saying he will take 12,000 men with haste and rush after David and overtake him and destroy him while he's still weary. And it's a good plan because David is so tired by now. He would surely fall. But before Absalom acts on that very good plan, he calls for Hushai the other counselor. And Hushai counsels against Ahithophel. Hushai says, no, don't do it like that. You get all the men of Israel and we'll go down like the sand of the sea and we will crush not just David, but all his supporters once and for all. And because the Lord had decided that he would overthrow Ahithophel's advice, Absalom hears Hushai's plan. It buys valuable time for King David. While Absalom is off trying to gather the whole of Israel to go to war, Hushai is able to send secret messengers out to David and warn him, saying, Arise, cross over the river 
to safety. The Lord has guarded his king. He would have been slaughtered that very night as he slept. But the Lord has caused him to arise and reach safety while he can. Verse 5 of our psalm, David said, I lay down and I slept. I woke again, for the Lord had sustained me. And that reassurance from the Lord who he knew had heard his prayer, who had defended and sustained him through that night of danger and terror, meant that he now had the confidence he needed for the day of battle that was to come. Psalm 3 verse 6, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So he cries out to the Lord again. Now, not as someone who is overwhelmed by his great enemies, but someone who calls upon the Lord, who alone can and will give him victory, he says. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing. Be on your people. And again, God hears his cry. When the servants of David go out to do battle with all the men of Israel in the forest of Ephraim, David and his servants are victorious at the loss of 20,000 of Israel. And so David and his loyal servants go back into Jerusalem. He is now once more God's unopposed king who has victory over all his enemies. And he brings in his faithful people with him and he gives to them this very psalm that they might always remember how God has brought salvation to their king and restored the kingdom to his people. Yet, and, and this is point four, Yet we may wonder, why is it that David receives such a special treatment from God? After all, there are many people who cry out to the Lord for help from their enemies, whether kings or individuals, and quite often they're not victorious. Many have given their lives trusting in the Lord. And it's not as if David's even particularly righteous after what's happened with Bathsheba, is it? Why does he get this special treatment? The answer to that lies in the way in which David is a king who functions to point forward to a much greater king to come. David's rule over God's people is like a dim reflection of God's perfect king, Christ, the king, the son of David, whose kingdom indeed will have no end. And as we see him in that light, in fact, we see this psalm take on a new life as we see its fulfillment in our king. You might remember that when Jesus, God's rightful king, came into the world, he too would find himself opposed by great numbers who had rebelled against God and righteousness and whose hearts had gone away after that false king, the devil, and his sweet talk and his empty promises. You might remember that instead of welcoming him and submitting to him as their king and their savior, they sought to kill him. You might picture Pilate in the judgment hall as he cries out to them, what shall I do with a man you call the king of the Jews? 
crucify him. Crucify him, they said. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Well, you might remember the words of our gospel reading today, in which our true king, nailed upon the cross to die, was being mocked by those who thought that there was no salvation for him in God, that God would not save him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. He saved others. He can't save himself. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But it's not only this in which our Lord fulfills this psalm. For like David, before he went to be crucified, Jesus ascended that very, very same Mount of Olives. And he too cried out to the Lord, knowing the calamity that was before him. He cried out, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And here we see, don't we, a very important difference between King David and Jesus to whom he points. Because although David knew that God's will was that he should face great calamity because of his great and grievous sin, Jesus knew it was God's will that he should face calamity for the sins not of himself but of his people. And unlike David, who, when he called out to the Lord for mercy, was told his sins were forgiven and he would not die, our Lord knows that if the sins of his people will be forgiven, it will take nothing less than his own death on the cross. So trusting firmly in the Father, the true king went on the cross and died for the sins of his people. But on the third day, the Lord was to him as a shield and his glory and the lifter up of his head as he raised him and seated him high above his enemies, above every ruler and power and dominion and giving to him all authority on heaven and on earth. And do you see, do you see if God has so sustained him and glorified him through that cross of terror, how much more is it certain that when he returns in power and with great glory that God will also give him victory over all things? Arise, O God, save me, O my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. Well, how would we apply that to ourselves today? What does it mean to us? The first thing we want to do is make sure that we don't make the mistake of making ourselves the David of the psalm. We're not God's anointed Old Testament king. We're also not Jesus to whom it points. So we can't really take the words and directly apply them as if they're our words. But there is a way in which they do very rightly apply to us, a link that brings us into the psalm, and that is the people, David's people to whom he gave the psalm. For in a similar way that his loyal servants were able to use the psalm to celebrate how God had sustained and exalted their king, and secured the kingdom for his servants. We too 
can look at our king, who God has sustained and exalted and celebrate the promise of God's blessing for his people in him. I bring you back to our opening question. Can we really be sure that when Christ comes again, he will really be able to destroy all rebellion and evil and bring his faithful servants into his eternal kingdom? Yes, we can be sure. We can be absolutely sure, for no matter how bad things are getting in the world, no matter what the devil and no matter what anything does, or how strong they seem to be, the fact that God has already sustained our king through suffering and death and hell and raised him to power and glory means we have full assurance that when he returns again, he will destroy every evil and bring us into his kingdom. And this, brothers and sisters, is a confidence we have in our Advent hope. But I do wonder whether there are still some of us who just aren't quite as filled with joyful expectation of his return in glory and victory as we really should be. Not perhaps because we doubt that he can overthrow all evil. We know that he will crush all who have rebelled. But because we know deep down how often we ourselves have been those who have rebelled against our king. We kind of worry that when he does return, we might be counted and crushed with the rebels instead of entering into his kingdom for his faithful servants. But if that is us, then do not be afraid. Remember why our sinless Christ suffered and died on that cross. Remember that our king suffered and died there, not for anything he had done, but for the sins of his people, for my sins and for your sins, so that when we, like David, cry out to him for forgiveness, we will be forgiven. We will not die, but we will live. So as we await his return from heaven, let us prepare ourselves by turning our hearts away from that false king and his false promises and turn it back to our rightful king, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us be quick to confess our sins to him. Hide nothing. He knows all our sins already. And receive from him forgiveness of the same through the blood of our king who loved us and gave his life for us. Then being forgiven, let us join with God's faithful people of this and every generation, longing earnestly from his return from heaven and the day when we leave this world of wickedness and suffering and sin forevermore. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Almighty Father, we pray for that day when you will send your Son, our King, back from heaven. We pray for that day when, according to your promise, you will crush in him all evil and cast the devil into the lake of fire. We pray for that day when righteousness will rule and not wickedness and evil.
we pray that as we await that day, you would grant us to turn our hearts to trust firmly in that King, to confess our sins and receive the promised forgiveness that's in his own blood. We pray for that day when we will enter in with, enter with him into his eternal kingdom forevermore. Amen.